Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. We're going to continue this morning by concluding chapter 1. So if you would, please open your Bibles uh, to the end of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, uh, verses 67 through 80. And stand with me for the reading of Scripture right now. This is what Luke has recorded. And his father, Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins." Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Church, this is God's word. Amen. Amen. So I want you to just imagine for a moment um, waiting for something that is so significant to you, that's so potentially life-changing that every day that passes as you wait for this thing um, feels like an eternity. It's kind of how my kids feel about Christmas right now. And so you're waiting and waiting, and I want you to picture the moment uh, when uh, that moment finally arrives for you. And as it arrives, that moment or that occasion, that thing you have been waiting for, not only meets your expectations, but far exceeds them. Far exceeds them. That's the kind of moment that we're stepping into this morning with Zechariah. Zechariah is uh, a man of God. He's a priest of God uh, in Jerusalem. He has served in the temple. Um, He is been a man who has been waiting for God's promises to unfold. He's been waiting for God's promise of a son to him to unfold for a short time. Um, He has been awaiting God's long-awaited promises to unfold um, for him on behalf of his people for a very long time. And Zechariah, for years and years, has been holding on to God's promises. And in this moment, as he holds his newly born son, as, as he gives to him or acknowledges the name uh, of his son, John, that the angel Gabriel gives to him from God, 
Um, in this moment, Zechariah realizes that not just the promise of a son, but, but all of these promises that he had been waiting on for, from God are all coming to fulfillment right in this moment. And so his response um, is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit um, and he sings a song. He, he prophesies. Um, and the nature of this song is it is a song of praise. Uh, that's the title of this message. The title of this message is Praise the Lord. Because Zechariah's song is fundamentally a song of praise. Um, As we look at this text together this morning, I think that we're going to see four reasons that we have to praise the Lord along with Zechariah. Four reasons that we have to praise the Lord. So first, uh, we praise the Lord for keeping his word. We praise the Lord for keeping his word. His word. I think that if there is one truth, one encouragement that should be front and center for us in this text, it is that God always keeps his promises. He is always faithful to his word. Um, He never fails to uphold what he promises. Now, as we begin, I want to call your attention to how Zechariah begins in this text. He begins by calling our attention back a thousand years in Israel's history uh, to the promises that God makes to David. Look at verses 68 through 71. So Zechariah begins this song or this psalm, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That's his way of saying praise the Lord. And why is it that the Lord, why is it that Yahweh is to be praised? Zechariah continues, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And so Zechariah is praising God because he senses, he sees that there is this very real sense in which God has now drawn near to his people. He has visited his people by doing this great thing. He has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. Now there are two important Old Testament phrases that Zechariah capitalizes on there. Horn of salvation and house of David. I need to say a few words about each of those phrases before we put them together. What does Zechariah mean, or what is he referring to? What is the significance of the phrase horn of salvation? Well, we know what a horn is. With respect to animals, uh, horns are used by animals in battle defensively for protection, um, offensively as weapons. Zechariah, of course, was part of a culture that was different from our culture, Um, And they were far more regularly accustomed to being around horned animals like bulls and rams. And so it's not surprising that some of the ancient biblical writers capitalized on common everyday imagery, like the image of an animal horn, to symbolize things. For animals, horns were instruments of power and of protection and of might. And so the ancient biblical writers often drew upon the image or the symbol of a horn to symbolize might or strength or power or protection. We see this very clearly in two books of the Bible. In the Old Testament, we see it clearly in the book of Daniel. In the New Testament, we see it clearly in the book of Revelation. In both Daniel and Revelation, the image of a horn Um, is used to symbolize powerful kings of the earth or powerful kingdoms. Now, the metaphor horn of salvation is used uh, by David in 
2 Samuel chapter 22. So we know how a horn represents something strong and powerful. David uses this in the phrase horn of salvation. And there's a point when David has settled in as the king of Israel, and he has kind of, uh, the Lord has delivered him from all of his enemies, including King Saul. And David is kind of enjoying a, a, a golden age of prosperity, of peace. He's settled into his throne. His kingdom is flourishing. Um, his reign is succeeding. Things are going well. The Lord has blessed him. The Lord's anointing is upon him. And so in that context, um, David is praising God for, for delivering him from his enemies. Um, and, and this is what he sings to the Lord. And he records it in Psalm 18. He says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Do you see that? My stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. So God is David's horn of salvation. God is David's strong and powerful savior who delivers him from his enemies and who establishes him in peace. But next, what's the significance of the phrase, the house of David? Notice that Zechariah speaks not just of David, but of the house of David. Well, now, David's name, again, transports us us back a thousand years in biblical history uh, to the events of 2 Samuel. Um, And that phrase, house of David, is drawn directly from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again, here we have David who is enjoying um, his reign. He's settled in. Things are going well. Uh, Israel is is experiencing a time of peace under under David's reign. And kind of during this time is an act of worship. David uh, sets out to build a house for God. He says, Lord, you have been good to me. You've blessed me. And now kind of as an unsolicited act of worship, David says, I'm going to build you a house. Of course, Um, God's presence had been localized in the Ark of the Covenant and which had been uh, protected and stored in the tabernacle in a tent. And David's like, tent's not good enough. I'm going to build you a nice house. And God responds to David. And, And God essentially says, you know, am I God that I need a house of cedar? Um, you want to build me a house, but here's the thing. I'm going to build you a house. And in second Samuel chapter seven, God promises uh, to build David a house, um, not in the form of a localized structure, but rather an everlasting dynasty. He promises to David a throne which will go on forever, a reign which will never end, an heir who will reign on his throne forever and ever in righteousness. And so this is a great big promise that God makes to David. An everlasting house, an everlasting line, an everlasting throne. And of course, in the immediate context, God's promises to David are partially realized um, and partially fulfilled in his son Solomon. We know that uh, Solomon is born, he grows up. Um, God gifts him with unparalleled wisdom. Um, Solomon does go on to build a house, to build Um, a literal temple for Yahweh. Solomon is wise and righteous as a king, 
for a while. But eventually, in time, we know that Solomon's sin brings him to ruin. And with his ruin, also ruin to uh, the nation of Israel, ultimately culminating in, to the nation's division into a northern and south- southern kingdom, into um, the loss of, of the kingly reign of the, of the monarchy. But in the distant future, in the distant context, in the future context, God's promise to David of an everlasting throne is going to be fulfilled in a future descendant of David, in a future heir to David's house. Are you with me? Now back to Zechariah. Zechariah praises God, and he's prophesying in this song, um, that the birth of his son, John, is the sign which signals the arrival of another. His son is the sign that signals the arrival of that long-promised, long-awaited, true and better descendant of David, that son of David, the one who comes as a horn of salvation for his people. Now remember, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke tells us here in chapter 1, are of priestly descent. Okay, that means that they are of the tribe of Levi. They are Levites. That means their son, John, is a Levite. He's of the tribe of Levi. Okay, and, and uh, David, his line descends from the tribe of Judah. So their son could not be this one that Zechariah is prophesying about, who, who will be the horn of salvation from the house of David. David comes from the tribe of Judah. So right here at the beginning of Zechariah's song, what we see is that his song is not so much caught up with the arrival of his own son, John, but rather with the arrival of the one who comes after John. The one who John's arrival signals. Does that make sense? And so we should ask, who is this forever king that God is raising up? Who is this horn of salvation from the house of David? Zechariah continues in verses 70 and 71, saying that the prophets also spoke of this one who is to come. Look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So as the centuries pass um, after David's throne falls, what happens? Of course, um, the kingdom is divided in two, northern and southern kingdom. Uh, kingdoms. God raises up the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They come in as means of judgment on the northern and southern kingdoms. Um, but then as the people are, are taken out of the land by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians, as they're exiled, you know, they've lost their national identity. They've lost their king. They've lost their temple. Now they lose their land. They're taken off uh, by foreign oppressors and foreign occupiers. Um, This is a means of God's discipline, but it's also a means of his plan of redemption. The Lord also raises up prophets to call the people to repent and to give them courage and hope about the future that he has prepared for them. And so, so we've gone back a thousand years to David, and now we scoot forward 200 years to Isaiah. About 200 years after David Um, Isaiah speaks of a child, he prophesies of a child who will be born of a virgin, whose name will, in a very real sense, literally be God with us. 
This child will grow up to be an ideal, perfect ruler. He will reign on David's throne. Uh, Yet, Isaiah says, he will endure tremendous, unparalleled suffering. And then a thousand, or a hundred years rather, after Isaiah, God raises up the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah likewise speaks of this one who is to come, who will be a righteous branch from David's line, a, a sinless branch, who will himself usher in a new covenant, which will bring with it new hearts for God's people. Then about a hundred years later, God raises up the prophet Ezekiel. And Ezekiel also speaks of this one who is to come, who himself will be a good shepherd for God's people, who will in some sense uh, be God's presence uh, personally embodied as a shepherd for God's people, who will be a forever prince and an heir to David's throne, um, whose presence in some sense will be like a temple where God's presence is personally mediated um, to God's people. And so we can see that beginning with the promises that God makes to David uh, of this this righteous heir, this this kingly heir, and then successively all the prophets that God raises up in the centuries following, that the picture is intensifying of this one who is to come, of this horn of salvation. The picture is growing and filling out of, of this one that Zechariah is praising God for. And so Zechariah in his song is in effect shouting, praise God for keeping his promises. God has kept his promise to David. God has kept his promises to us through Isaiah. God has kept his promises to us through Jeremiah. God has kept his promises to us through Ezekiel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm Zechariah, I think that those kept promises are something worth singing about. But Zechariah doesn't stop here, right? He's just getting started. Next, he's going to take us back another thousand years to Abraham. So he he calls our attention back a thousand years to David. Then we get through David and the prophets. And now he's like, I'm going to take you, I'm going to take you further back. I'm going to take you back to Father Abraham. Remember how Zechariah begins his song of praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise the Lord, he says. Now jumping down to verses 71 through 75, he continues that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Well, what is the oath that God swore to their, to their forefather Abraham? We have to go back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, we see the Lord's call to Abram. <clears throat> Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that a big promise? And then in Genesis 15, God reiterates Uh, this promise to Abraham, and he formalizes it. Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is 
Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able, number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. There's more we can say about God's words to Abram, um, God giving him the name Abraham. But let's just say this. Abram has no son. He has no heir. He is old. His wife is old. And yet God promises him this son. God promises him this heir. And he promises that through this heir, God will make of him a great nation. And not only will God make of him a great nation, but through this heir that God promises him, though he's childless and old, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him. Is that a big promise? And so what is Zechariah doing? It's like he's zooming out. And giving us a big view of biblical history. And he's going back a thousand years to recall the great promises that God has made to David. And he zooms back out. He goes back another thousand years. And he recalls this great big promise that God makes to Abraham. And then in this song, in these few lines, what he is doing as he is led by the Spirit is he is taking these two profound, great big lines of promise and he is connecting them together and showing how they find their fulfillment and culmination in the events that are unfolding right in front of him. And he's saying, praise God. Praise God, because he has kept his precious promises. They are finding their fulfillment now. God has kept his promises, promises that spanned over 2,000 years. Sometimes we think God takes a little while to work, right? We haven't waited 2,000 years. There is a sense in which Zechariah was waiting for promises that had been made 2,000 years prior. And Zechariah is the first one to prophesy, as Luke records, after 400 years of God's silence. The people had been exiled. They returned to the land. The Old Testament closes. There's 400 years of silence. The Jewish people are waiting. They're under the boot of Rome. Has God forgotten us? What is going on? This is not how this was all supposed to work out. When will Messiah come? Will he even come? Are we even believing the right things? Romans. Greeks, Persians, Babylonians, Assyrians, oppressor after oppressor after oppressor. And Zechariah praises God because he sees God is faithful. God has kept his promises. So I want to ask you, if God was faithful to keep his word to Zechariah, If God was faithful to keep his promises to David, if God was faithful to keep his promises to Abraham, don't you think you can trust him to keep his word to you? If he can cause all things to work over the course of 2,000 years of human history and direct human history to the point where Zechariah can hold his circumcised son in his arms, a son he thought not possible, 
just like Abram thought his son was not possible. And look at his son, John, and see him as the one who points to the other baby soon to be born, the baby being the convergence of all of God's promises. If he can do all that, then don't you think he has your life under control? Do you think you can trust his promises to you? Friends, I want us to be encouraged like God's got us. No matter what's going on in our life, no matter what trials we're experiencing, what griefs we're enduring, what losses, what challenges, what difficulties, what doubts, no matter what, friends, God's got you. Because the horn of salvation from the house of David did not only come to Zechariah, he has also come to us. He's our horn of salvation. And so we can join with Zechariah in praising the Lord because it's not just that the Lord has kept his promises to his old covenant people. The Lord has kept his promises to us and he will keep those promises. Amen. So we praise the Lord for keeping his word. But next we praise the Lord for preparing his people. Look at verses 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. These are the only two verses in the entire song where Zechariah directly addresses his son. There's a sense in which this song is about his son, it's about John, but really, in a greater sense, it's not really about John. These are the kind of the two verses in the song where the Johnness. Um, of this song peaks. And really they enunciate the true purposes for John's arrival. What is John's true purpose according to this song? Look again at verse 76. And you child will be called prophet of the most high, prophet of the most high, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So John is a preparer. He's a preparer. He is the one that God is raising up to, in some sense, prepare his people for the arrival of his son. Now, let's just go back uh, in chapter 1 to when the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and reveals to him what God's purpose will be for his son, John. Uh, Luke 1, 13 through, through 17. But the angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John. Skip ahead to verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John is the preparer. Do you see that word prepare again? Remember how we just saw that Zechariah's song begins... Uh, with praise that God has finally raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. And then he says that this was according to uh, what God spoke through the prophets of old. Let's go back to two more of those prophets. God raised up the prophet Malachi uh, towards the end of the Old Testament period. And God spoke through Malachi of the one he would send. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. 
So God has promised to send this messenger who will prepare his own way before he comes to his people. Or in Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Prepare, prepare, prepare. God has promised that before he sends this one, he will send one before him to prepare his people. Now, Zechariah is praising God because he holds in his hands the very preparer that God had promised. His son is going to be the preparer that Malachi spoke of. His son is going to be the preparer that Isaiah spoke of. But Zechariah is not praising God primarily because his family has the honor of bearing that preparer. Zechariah is praising God first and foremost because of who this preparer announces and what that means for the world and what that means for his people. You see, the birth of his son means that his Messiah is near. Again, God keeping his word. But I actually think we should ask a question at this point. I think we should ask, why is it that God had to send a preparer in the first place? Why is it that God had to send a preparer in the first place? Why do we need John? right? Like, couldn't Jesus just simply arrive? Couldn't we have just skipped all the John business? I think there's at least two reasons why God sent a preparer. Uh, the first reason, I think, is there was, God promised somebody that people could look for who would establish Jesus's identity as the true Messiah, right? So anybody could just come on the scene and claim to be the Messiah, but they had to be authenticated by someone so that the people knew as it was written in scripture, as it had been prophesied over and over for centuries past, we need to look for this one who will point to this one and they will follow these patterns. And so God raises up John and John publicly affirms and baptizes Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But I think there's even more important reason why God had to send a preparer, why God had to raise up a preparer. And that's because by the time Jesus comes, and this could even be said of our time that we live in today, the people's hearts were cold. The people's hearts were cold in their messianic expectations. Their expectations for who the Messiah should be and what he should accomplish were confused. Their hearts were cold. And their expectations were confused. Are you with me? I think the same could be said about many people today. Spiritually, people needed to be prepared to receive Jesus and his message. And so John preached a message of repentance and a message of spiritual renewal, calling people to an awareness of their sin and calling people to uh, a, a recognition of their need to turn from their sin and to return to Yahweh, their God. Look again at what Zechariah's words are in verse 77, where he says that John comes to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. The two key words in that verse are salvation and sins. Do you see those two words? salvation and sin. The people were not prepared for what Jesus was going to come and offer them. The people were looking for a military Messiah. When the people thought about the horn of salvation that God had promised them, they thought of a military ruler, 
They thought their Messiah would come and that he would deliver them from the boot of Rome. And that after all of the, the lines of oppressors and, and all of the foreign occupiers that they had dealt with for century after century after century, occupying their land, oppressing their people, taxing them to death, taking away their independence. They simply longed for somebody to come up and to reestablish their independence. And so their perspective was very much on the here and now. Who can relate? We're tired of Roman occupation. We're tired of political oppression. We're tired of Gentile overlords. We want Messiah to come and liberate us. We want Messiah to come and establish David's throne. We want to rule over the nations once again. But Jesus was not coming as a military Messiah. His purpose was much greater than that. Jesus was not coming to set political captives free. He was coming to set spiritual captives free. And how could anyone receive his message of repentance and faith in the kingdom of God without any awareness of their bondage to sin? Without any awareness of their need to repent? Without any perception of their need for God's forgiveness and redemption and deliverance? Without their awareness that they needed new hearts? Without any such awareness, Jesus wouldn't have made any sense to them. So they needed to be prepared. Are you with me? So Zechariah sees this happening. He sees God keeping his promise to prepare Messiah's way. And so he praises God for preparing his people. Certainly God raised John up to prepare the way for Jesus. And we should join with Zechariah in this song and in God's faithfulness to keep his promise to raise up or prepare. But I want to speak to those of us who are believers here for just a moment. Don't you think we should also use this occasion to praise God for how he sovereignly prepared each of us individually to receive the good news about Jesus? Isn't it true that it was really God who prepared our hearts for the good news? I mean, those of us who really know the Lord have to look back in our lives and acknowledge that it was not really I who sought him, but it was him who sought me, right? And if we were to kind of survey all of us in this room, I'm sure that we could, we could observe that he prepared each one of us uniquely, differently, maybe using our life circumstances. Maybe, maybe God drew you to his son through certain Uh, trials and challenges that you faced in your life, right? Hard times sometimes lead us to search for truth. And and maybe God used something difficult to provoke you to search for the truth and and open your heart and and he brought you to Jesus. Maybe the Lord used a personal relationship. Maybe um, he just quietly brought somebody into your life that at the right time and in the right moment said the right word about Jesus and, and you were prepared to meet the sun. You know, sometimes transforming experiences, you know, life-changing events like uh, the birth of a child or, or the death of a loved one or maybe a near-death experience yourself can provoke the kind of thinking and openness and God can use those things to prepare your heart to bring you to the knowledge of the truth. God can use all kinds of things. He can use the testimony of the local church, other believers. He can use cultural influences, um, uh, 
quiet internal spiritual nudging. But I think the bottom line is, is that if we're honest, if we're honest, we could all, we should all stop and praise the Lord with Zechariah for preparing his people to receive Jesus because that includes us. Amen. Third, we praise the Lord for saving his people. We praise the Lord for saving his people. What do you think this song of Zechariah's reveals about what God is accomplishing, what God is doing in the world? If you're just kind of boil it down to one thing, God is doing this. What would that thing be? Well, I've taken a sampling of the verses from this song and put them under this heading in your notes because I want you to notice the frequency of salvation language in this song. So going from 68 to 77, um, we read, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Um, Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of theirs. Do you see all that salvation language that's sprinkled throughout this song? So again, what does this song of Zechariah reveal about what God is doing in the world? What is God up to? He is saving people. God is saving people. What is he saving us from? Or to put it differently, what what are we saved from? Saved from what? I think over the past, yes, that's right. Over the past, I don't know, maybe five decades in in our culture, um, there's been increasing confusion about what it means to be saved. Somebody says, I'm saved. Like, saved from what? What exactly does that mean? I think that no modern heresy has contributed more to the confusion about what it means to be saved than the modern prosperity gospel. And so kind of as a response to this increasing confusion, um, the late R.C. Sproul wrote a clarifying little gem of a book titled, Saved from What? That's an important question. What is it that we are saved from? We might have some copies in the bookstore. <clears throat> People have all kinds of opinions about this. I mean, I talk to non-believers and, you know, they have opinions about Jesus. And, and if they actually believe that Jesus came to save us from anything, then there is, uh, you know, all kinds of opinions about what it is that he came to save us from. Some people believe that Jesus came to save us from, you know, material poverty only. Right? That Jesus came and his primary mission was to eradicate physical poverty. Or that maybe Jesus came to save us from earthly troubles only. You know, that he came and his main purpose is to kind of like solve our our immediate life problems. um, Like health issues and relationship issues. Others believe that Jesus came um, to save us from political oppression, right? Uh, The idea that that Jesus came to to liberate people from, from bad rulers, some people believe that Jesus came just to save us from physical death. You know, we, we will die, and then we'll be raised. And, and really, that's, that's all that Jesus came to deal with. 
Some people believe that some people believe that Jesus came to save us from personal moral responsibility. You know that Jesus died and he paid for everything and so we don't really have to mind how we live anymore. <laughs> some people believe that Jesus came to uh, save us to a judgment-free existence, right? This idea that Jesus' message was just about love and acceptance and, and, and there's, there's no real message in the Bible about judgment and the need for repentance. Jesus was a good moral teacher, right? How, are you with me? Yes. Right? And so, you know, these misconceptions always kind of emerge from a, a partial or distorted understanding of Jesus' teaching and his mission. But look at how the salvation picture, which grows throughout the song, culminates towards the end in verse 77. This one that has been promised comes, this, this baby is born to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so God is sending John to announce to the world that salvation is directly tied to the forgiveness of sins. Do you see that? That's the mission. That is people's greatest need. That is our greatest need. Our greatest need concerns the fact that our sins have separated us from a holy God. And that God, because he is good, is therefore also just. Because he is righteous and holy, he not only will, he must contend with, he must punish human sin. And so what does a good God do with rebels like us? He will judge our sin. Somebody will have to pay for them. How is it that a good God offers forgiveness to people who have turned astray, each like sheep, gone their own way? You know, I tell my kids that sin is like going my way and not God's way. Each of us has gone our own way, the scriptures say. But God, in his mercy and his grace, in the fullness of time, sent forth his son who lived sinlessly where we have lived sinfully. And after living sinlessly and perfectly righteously, went to the cross. And on that cross, he died a death that we deserved. And he hung in our place. And as he hung in that place, the father poured out all of his wrath on account of our sin, on his son, as our substitute. And that wrath was satisfied in his son. Appeased. Such that after... After uh, being a sacrifice for us, Jesus dying, being buried, then being raised for our justification, uh, it makes God has made it possible not only for our sins to be credited to him by faith, but for his perfect righteousness to be given to us. Why? So that we could be forgiven. God has made it possible for us to be saved, for us to be forgiven for our sins through the work of his son. That is our greatest need. If this is something that seems foreign to you, if you've not heard this and you're here this morning visiting, then the Lord has brought you here so that you would hear that this is your greatest need and your greatest need is met in his son. And so if you've not believed in his son, I want to encourage you and call you to believe in the name of Jesus this morning. What are we saved from, friends? We are saved from the eternal justice of God. Amen? But we're not just saved from something, we're also saved to something. Notice, notice how Zechariah's song not only enunciates what we're saved from, but also what we are saved to. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What are our greatest enemies? Are our greatest enemies Democrats? 
or Republicans, you know, or China. What, what are our greatest enemies? Sin and death, right? He has delivered us from our greatest enemies, sin and death. These are the greatest enemies that we have been saved from. But here we are saved to lives of holiness and lives of righteousness and lives that are characterized by serving our king, by serving our God without fear, he says. Why without fear? Because everything there is about God that we should rightly fear has been taken care of by Jesus. And so once saved, we're saved to lives of fellowship and communion with the living God, where we share in the great privilege of serving his purposes on earth. So praise God for saving his people, right? Praise God for saving us. And last, last, we praise God for giving his son. We praise God for giving his son. Are you still with me? I think that Zechariah's song closes with um, the most beautiful biblical metaphor. He says, in effect, as he's led by the Holy Spirit, that salvation, that the forgiveness of sins comes to us, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The end of Zechariah's song here makes several allusions to the Old Testament. Really, the whole song does, but these final allusions are are powerful and beautiful. Zechariah says that God's forgiveness, the forgiveness of our sins, is not a function of our earning forgiveness or our merit or our worthiness. Rather, he says that God's forgiveness is ultimately a function of his tender mercy. Do you see those words? Andrew spoke to us last week about God's mercy. Remember the English word mercy in our Bibles translates the Greek words eleos, eleos. Also remember that in this song, Zechariah is speaking prophetically, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is drawing deeply on the language of the Old Testament. It turns out that the Greek word here in our text for mercy, that word eleos, most commonly translates the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed, Andrew mentioned that word last week. And so what Zechariah is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying through Zechariah in this prophetic moment is that the forgiveness of our sins comes because of the tender chesed of God. How should we think about that chesed? What exactly does that mean? What does it include? Well, it certainly includes the idea or the reality of mercy, but it actually also includes a lot more than that. God's chesed is his deep, enduring never-ending commitment to his people. His chesed is a kind of love that includes mercy, that includes grace, that includes loyalty, loyalty that does not waver, that is unfaltering over time, that is unyielding in its commitment and in its promise. God's chesed uh, reflects his unwavering dedication to his people regardless of their shortcomings, regardless of our shortcomings. 
His chesed is not something that is earned. It is something that is given freely and is purely a function of God's loving character. Uh, when the Old Testament is translated in English, we look in our English Bibles, there are two words that are typically joined together to translate uh, God's chesed. When that one word appears in Hebrew, two words appear in English, and those two words are steadfast love. Steadfast love. For example, we look in Psalm 100, verse 5. We read, for the Lord is good. His chesed, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You ever wonder if God's patience runs out with you? Oh, I blew it again. I sinned again. I fell again. I gossiped again. I lusted again. Whatever, I did it again. If the most common translation of God's chesed is his steadfast love, then the most common description of his chesed in the Old Testament is that it endures forever. His chesed, his steadfast love endures forever. Le'olam chasto in the Hebrew, literally his chesed goes into forever. It goes into eternity. God's love for us, his mercy for us, his forgiveness of our sins is not conditioned on our performance, friends. It doesn't cease when we sin again and then again and then again. No, it goes into forever. It goes into eternity. It endures unconditionally. That is the kind of mercy and love and grace and loyalty that God has towards us, his people, because of the work of his son on our behalf. The Holy Spirit says through Zechariah here, that the forgiveness of our sins comes through the tender chesed of God. And Zechariah continues. He says, because of the tender mercy, the tender chesed of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us on high. Do you see that? The sunrise shall visit us on high. The image of a sunrise visiting God's people is drawn from the prophet Malachi. And Malachi Chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we get a picture of the day of the Lord. And it's a dual picture. It's a picture uh, of judgment to come on God's enemies, on those who do not fear him and, and spurn him and spurn his son. But it's also a picture of mercy on those who turn to him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. We were arrogant and evildoers at one point. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So here, the sun, S-U-N, is a prophetic picture of the sun, S-O-N. The sun, S-U-N, is a source of light, right? Uh, The sun brings light and therefore it pushes out darkness. And just like, you know, the sun in the heavens brings light and pushes out the darkness, so Jesus is the light of the world. He is the one who drives away spiritual darkness and brings forth truth and life. The sun in the sky is a life-giving presence. Uh, Similarly, Jesus is the giver of spiritual life. Amen? We think about the sun and the dawning of new days. A new day brings new hope. Like, I had a bad day yesterday, but I'm going to go to sleep. And tomorrow's a what? It's a new day. In the same way, Jesus' resurrection guarantees for us a new day, a new beginning, and a new hope. The sun's, the sun's rays have healing properties. 
uh, Jesus' presence has healing properties. The sun comes with healing in its wings. The sun in the sky provides for us guidance and direction. Jesus is the one who says, follow me. Amen? And just as the, sh- the sun shines from heaven on everyone without discrimination, all, all, who, are of, all who are under under the sun, feel its presence, benefit from its light. You know, it's not like the sun says, I'm going to shine a little bit more on Manhattan Beach, a little bit less on Redondo Beach. (laughs) The sun shines on the entire earth. In the same way, Jesus' message goes out to everyone. No No matter age, no matter socioeconomic status, no matter race, no matter background, no matter location, Jesus' message of forgiveness is available to everyone. And so Zechariah promised, praises God that the one who is coming is that sunrise who is visiting from on high. And then he closes by intensifying this image of a visiting sun from on high. He says that this sun comes to give light And to bring peace. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. To guide our feet into the way of peace. That verse is a clear callback to Isaiah chapter 9. Zechariah, in his mind, those who were listening to him would have clearly thought Isaiah 9 when they heard that language. So let's read Isaiah 9 together. I can't think of a more appropriate time of year to reflect on those words than right now as we anticipate Christmas. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Skip down to verse 6 and look who is announced. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is the horn of salvation from the house of David. Zechariah is saying he is here. He is near. As we close reflecting on those words from Isaiah 9, I want us to remember that before Jesus could be our wonderful counselor, he had to become our sacrificial lamb. And he had to endure the cross for our redemption. And before he could be exalted as mighty God, he had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, bearing our iniquities as the man of sorrows. And before he could be recognized as everlasting father, offering us lasting love and redemption and drawing us into the family of God, he had to first lay down his life as the forsaken son. And before reigning as the prince of peace, Jesus had to endure the turmoil of betrayal the agony of the cross, and the silence of the grave. In every step of Jesus' earthly journey, he embodied the paradoxes of divine strength and earthly humility. 
of majesty, but also of sacrifice. And that shows us that his path to glory was paved with suffering. And his crown of victory was first a crown of thorns. And so as we conclude now by reflecting on those titles of honor that, that are given to him through the prophet Isaiah, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, let's not forget his path of suffering and surrender on our behalf because it's through his wounds that we have been healed and it's through his sacrifice that we have found salvation. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Praise the Lord for giving his son. Amen, church? If this song shows us anything, it shows us that God has prepared the way with John, but he has provided the way in his son Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you have not yet called upon the name of Jesus, if you have not turned to Jesus, I want to encourage you, I want to plead with you to do that now. Because this morning he is calling to you, come to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful song that by your spirit you inspired Zechariah to sing as a means of praise for your goodness and your faithfulness and and your mercy and your steadfast love. And we join with with him, Lord. We join with Zechariah in in praising you for, for giving us your son, especially at this time of Christmas, for his arrival. Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus, as we reflect upon who you are and what you came to accomplish in this world in our lives, we turn our attention now to that ultimate work of accomplishment on the cross. As we remember you by taking communion, Jesus, we ask that you would be honored in our midst. We ask that by your spirit, our hearts would be encouraged and strengthened. Our faith faith would be bolstered and that we as your people would be built up. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.